Part Third of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, The Lighthouse, Chapter Twelve. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part Third, The Lighthouse, Chapter Twelve. Nostromo had been growing rich very slowly. It was an effect of his prudence. He could command himself even when thrown off his balance. And to become the slave of a treasure with full self-knowledge is an occurrence rare and mentally disturbing. But it was also in a great part because of the difficulty of converting it into a form in which it could become available. The mere act of getting it away from the island piecemeal, little by little, was surrounded by difficulties, by the dangers of imminent detection. He had to visit the great Isabel in secret, between his voyages along the coast, which were the ostensible source of his fortune. The crew of his own schooner were to be feared as if they had been spies upon their dreaded captain. He did not dare stay too long in port. When his coaster was unloaded, he hurried away on another trip, for he feared arousing suspicion even by a day's delay. Sometimes, during a week's stay or more, he could only manage one visit to the treasure, and that was all, a couple of ingots. He suffered through his fears as much as through his prudence. To do things by stealth humiliated him, and he suffered most from the concentration of his thought upon the treasure. A transgression, a crime, entering a man's existence, eats it up like a malignant growth, consumes it like a fever. Nostromo had lost his peace. The genuineness of all his qualities was destroyed. He felt it himself, and often cursed the silver of San Tome. His courage, his magnificence, his leisure, his work, everything was as before, only everything was a sham. But the treasure was real. He clung to it with a more tenacious mental grip, but he hated the feel of the ingots. Sometimes after putting away a couple of them in his cabin, the fruit of a secret night expedition to the great Isabel, he would look fixedly at his fingers as if surprised they had left no stain on his skin. He had found means of disposing of the silver bars in distant ports. The necessity to go far afield made his coasting voyages long and caused his visits to the Viola household to be rare and far between. He was fated to have his wife from there. He had said so once to Giorgio himself. But the Garibaldino had put the subject aside with a majestic wave of his hand, clutching the smouldering black briar-root pipe. There was plenty of time. He was not the man to force his girls upon anybody. As time went on, Nostromo discovered his preference for the younger of the two. They had some profound similarities of nature, which must exist for complete confidence and understanding, no matter what outward differences of temperament there may be to exercise their own fascination of contrast. His wife would have to know his secret, or else life would be impossible. He was attracted by Giselle, with her candid gaze and white throat, pliable, silent, fond of excitement under her quiet indolence, whereas Linda, with her intense, passionately pale face, energetic, all fire and words, touched with gloom and scorn, a chip of the old block, true daughter of the austere Republican, but with Teresa's voice, inspired him with a deep-seated mistrust. Moreover, the poor girl could not conceal her love for Gian Battista. He could see it would be violent, exacting, suspicious, 
uncompromising like her soul. Giselle, by her fair but warm beauty, by the surface placidity of her nature holding a promise of submissiveness, by the charm of her girlish mysteriousness, excited his passion and allayed his fears as to the future. His absences from Salako were long. On returning from the longest of them, he made out lighters loaded with blocks of stone lying under the cliff of the Great Isabel, Cranes and scaffolding above, workmen's figures moving about, and a small lighthouse already rising from its foundations on the edge of the cliff. At this unexpected, undreamt-of, startling sight, he thought himself lost irretrievably. What could save him from detection now? Nothing. He was struck with amazed dread at this turn of chance that would kindle a far-reaching light upon the only secret spot of his life, that life whose very essence, value, reality consisted in its reflection from the admiring eyes of men. All of it but that thing which was beyond common comprehension, which stood between him and the power that hears and gives effect to the evil intention of curses. It was dark. Not every man had such a darkness. And they were going to put a light there. A light. He saw it shining upon disgrace, poverty, contempt. Somebody was sure to. Perhaps somebody had already. The incomparable Nostromo, the Capitaz, the respected and feared Captain Fidanza, the unquestioned patron of secret societies, a republican like old Giorgio and a revolutionist at heart, but in another manner, was on the point of jumping overboard from the deck of his own schooner. That man, subjective almost to insanity, looked suicide deliberately in the face. But he never lost his head. He was checked by the thought that this was no escape. He imagined himself dead and the disgrace, the shame, going on. Or rather, properly speaking, he could not imagine himself dead. He was possessed too strongly by the sense of his own existence, a thing of infinite duration in its changes, to grasp the notion of finality. The earth goes on forever. And he was courageous. It was a corrupt courage, but it was as good for his purposes as the other kind. He sailed close to the cliff of the Great Isabel, throwing a penetrating glance from the deck at the mouth of the ravine, tangled in an undisturbed growth of bushes. He sailed close enough to exchange hails with the workmen, shading their eyes on the edge of the sheer drop of the cliff overhung by the jib-head of a powerful crane. He perceived that none of them had any occasion even to approach the ravine where the silver lay hidden, let alone to enter it. In the harbour he learned that no one slept on the island. The labouring gangs returned to port every evening, singing chorus songs in the empty lighters towed by a harbour tug. For the moment... He had nothing to fear. But afterwards, he asked himself. Later, when a keeper came to live in the cottage that was being built some hundred and fifty yards back from the low light tower and four hundred or so from the dark, shaded, jungly ravine containing the secret of his safety, of his influence, of his magnificence, of his power over the future, of his defiance of ill luck, of every possible betrayal from rich and poor alike, what then? He could never shake off the treasure. His audacity, greater than that of other men, had welded that vein of silver into his life. And the feeling of fearful and ardent subjection, 
the feeling of his slavery so irremediable and profound that often in his thoughts he compared himself to the legendary gringos, neither dead nor alive, bound down to their conquest of unlawful wealth on Azuera, weighed heavily on the independent Captain Fidanza, owner and master of a coasting schooner, whose smart appearance and fabulous good luck in trading were so well known along the western seaboard of a vast continent fiercely whiskered and grave, a shade less supple in his walk, the vigour and symmetry of his powerful limbs lost in the vulgarity of a brown tweed suit made by Jews in the slums of London and sold by the clothing department of the Compagnia Anzani, Captain Fidanza was seen in the streets of Sulaco attending to his business, as usual, that trip. And, as usual, he allowed it to get about that he had made a great profit on his cargo. It was a cargo of salt fish, and Lent was approaching. He was seen in tramcars going to and fro between the town and the harbour. He talked with people in a cafe or two in his measured, steady voice. Captain Fidanza was seen. The generation that would know nothing of the famous ride to Caeta was not born yet. Nostromo, the miscalled Capataz de Cargadores, had made for himself, under his rightful name, another public existence but modified by the new conditions, less picturesque, more difficult to keep up in the increased size and varied population of Sulaco, the progressive capital of the Occidental Republic. Captain Fidanza, unpicturesque but always a little mysterious, was recognised quite sufficiently under the lofty glass and iron roof of the Sulaco railway station. He took a local train and got out in Rinson, where he visited the widow of the cargador who had died of his wounds at the dawn of the new era, like Don José Avellanos, in the patio of the Casa Gould. He consented to sit down and drink a glass of cool lemonade in the hut, while the woman, standing up, poured a perfect torrent of words to which he did not listen. He left some money with her, as usual the orphaned children, growing up and well-schooled, calling him uncle, clamoured for his blessing. He gave that, too, and in the doorway paused for a moment to look at the flat face of the San Tome mountain with a faint frown. This slight contraction of his bronzed brow, casting a marked tinge of severity upon his usual unbending expression, was observed at the lodge which he attended, but went away before the banquet. He wore it at the meeting of some good comrades, Italians and Occidentals, assembled in his honour under the presidency of an indigent, sickly, somewhat hunchbacked little photographer with a white face and a magnanimous soul dyed crimson by a bloodthirsty hate of all capitalists, oppressors of the two hemispheres. The heroic Giorgio Viola, old revolutionist, would have understood nothing of his opening speech, and Captain Fidanza, lavishly generous as usual to some poor comrades, made no speech at all. He had listened, frowning, with his mind far away, and walked off unapproachable, silent, like a man full of cares. His frown deepened as, in the early morning, he watched the stonemasons go off to the great Isabel in lighters loaded with squared blocks of stone, enough to add another course to the squat light tower. That was the rate of the work, one course per day and Captain Fidanza meditated. The presence of strangers on the island would cut him completely off the treasure. It had been difficult and dangerous enough before. He was afraid, and he was angry.
he thought with the resolution of a master and the cunning of a cowed slave. Then he went ashore. He was a man of resource and ingenuity, and, as usual, the expedient he found at a critical moment was effective enough to alter the situation radically. He had the gift of evolving safety out of the very danger, this incomparable Nostromo, this fellow in a thousand. With Giorgio established on the great Isabel, there would be no need for concealment. He would be able to go openly, in daylight, to see his daughters, one of his daughters, and stay late talking to the old Garibaldino. Then, in the dark, night after night, he would dare to grow rich quicker now. He yearned to clasp, embrace, absorb, subjugate in unquestioned possession this treasure whose tyranny had weighed upon his mind, his actions, his very sleep. He went to see his friend Captain Mitchell, and the thing was done as Dr Monigham had related to Mrs Gould. When the project was mooted to the Garibaldino, something like the faint reflection, the dim ghost of a very ancient smile, stole under the white and enormous moustaches of the old hater of kings and ministers. His daughters were the object of his anxious care. The younger especially. Linda, with her mother's voice, had taken more her mother's place. Her deep, vibrating, Eh, padre, seemed, but for the change of the word, the very echo of the impassioned, remonstrating, Eh, Giorgio, of poor signora Teresa. It was his fixed opinion that the town was no proper place for his girls. The infatuated but guileless Ramirez was the object of his profound aversion as resuming the sins of the country whose people were blind, vile esclavos. On his return from his next voyage, Captain Fidanza found the violas settled in the lightkeeper's cottage. His knowledge of Giorgio's idiosyncrasies had not played him false. The Garibaldino had refused to entertain the idea of any companion whatever except his girls, and Captain Mitchell, anxious to please his poor Nostromo with that felicity of inspiration which only true affection can give, had formally appointed Linda Viola as underkeeper of the Isabel's light. The light is private property, he used to explain. It belongs to my company. I've the power to nominate whom I like, and Viola it shall be. It's about the only thing Nostromo, a man worth his weight in gold, mind you, has ever asked me to do for him. Directly his schooner was anchored opposite the new custom house, with its sham air of a Greek temple, flat-roofed with a colonnade, Captain Fidanza went pulling his small boat out of the harbour, bound for the Great Isabel, openly, in the light of a declining day, before all men's eyes, with a sense of having mastered the fates. He must establish a regular position. He would ask him for his daughter now. He thought of Giselle as he pulled. Linda loved him, perhaps, but the old man would be glad to keep the elder who had his wife's voice. He did not pull for the narrow strand where he had landed with Deku and afterwards alone on his first visit to the treasure. He made for the beach at the other end and walked up the regular and gentle slope of the wedge-shaped island. Giorgio Viola, whom he saw from afar, sitting on a bench under the front wall of the cottage, lifted his arms slightly to his loud hail. He walked up. Neither of the girls appeared. "'It is good here,' said the old man in his austere, faraway manner. Nostromo nodded, and then, after a short silence, 
You saw my schooner passing not two hours ago. Do you know why I'm here before, so to speak? My anchor has fairly bitten into the ground of this port of Sulaco. You are welcome like a son, the old man declared quietly, staring away upon the sea. Ah, thy son, I know. I am what thy son would have been. It is well, viejo, it is a very good welcome. Listen, I have come to ask you for... A sudden dread came upon the fearless and incorruptible Nostromo. He dared not utter the name in his mind. The slight pause only imparted a marked weight and solemnity to the changed end of the phrase. For my wife, his heart was beating fast. It is time you... The Garibaldino arrested him with an extended arm. That was left for you to judge. He got up slowly. His beard, unclipped since Teresa's death, thick, snow-white, covered his powerful chest. He turned his head to the door and called out in his strong voice, Linda! Her answer came sharp and faint from within, and the appalled Nostromo stood up too, but remained mute, gazing at the door. He was afraid. He was not afraid of being refused the girl he loved. No mere refusal could stand between him and a woman he desired. But the shining spectre of the treasure rose before him, claiming his allegiance in a silence that could not be gainsaid. He was afraid because, neither dead nor alive, like the gringos on Azuera, he belonged body and soul to the unlawfulness of his audacity. He was afraid of being forbidden the island. He was afraid and said nothing. Seeing the two men standing side by side to await her, Linda stopped in the doorway. Nothing could alter the passionate, dead whiteness of her face, but her black eyes seemed to catch and concentrate all the light of the low sun in a flaming spark within the black depths, covered at once by the slow descent of heavy eyelids. Behold thy husband, master and benefactor, Old Viola's voice resounded with a force that seemed to fill the whole gulf. She stepped forward with her eyes nearly closed, like a sleepwalker in a beatific dream. Nostromo made a superhuman effort. It is time, Linda, we two were betrothed, he said steadily in his level, careless, unbending tone. She put her hand into his offered palm, lowering her head, dark with bronze glints, upon which her father's hand rested for a moment. And so the soul of the dead is satisfied. This came from Giorgio Viola, who went on talking for a while of his dead wife, while the two, sitting side by side, never looked at each other. Then the old man ceased, and Linda, motionless, began to speak. Ever since I have lived in the world, I have lived for you alone, Gian Battista, and that you knew... You knew it, Battistino. She pronounced the name exactly with her mother's intonation. A gloom as of the grave covered Nostromo's heart. Yes, I knew, he said. The heroic Garibaldino sat on the same bench, bowing his hoary head, his old soul dwelling alone with its memories, tender and violent, terrible and dreary, solitary on the earth full of men. And Linda, his best beloved daughter, was saying, I was yours ever since I can remember. 
I had only to think of you for the earth to become empty to my eyes. When you were there, I could see no one else. I was yours. Nothing is changed. The world belongs to you, and you let me live in it. She dropped her low, vibrating voice to a still lower note and found other things to say, torturing for the man at her side. Her murmur ran on, ardent and voluble. She did not seem to see her sister, who came out with an altar cloth she was embroidering in her hands and passed in front of them, silent, fresh, fair, with a quick glance and a faint smile, to sit a little away on the other side of Nostromo. The evening was still. The sun sank almost to the edge of a purple ocean and the white lighthouse, livid against the background of clouds filling the head of the gulf, bore the lantern red and glowing like a live ember kindled by the fire of the sky. Giselle, indolent and demure, raised the altar cloth from time to time to hide nervous yawns as of a young panther. Suddenly Linda rushed at her sister and, seizing her hand, covered her face with kisses. Nostromo's brain reeled. When she left her, as if stunned by the violent caresses, with her hands lying in her lap, the slave of the treasure felt as if he could shoot that woman. Old Giorgio lifted his leonine head. Where are you going, Linda? To the light, Padre mio. Si, si, to your duty. He got up too, looked after his eldest daughter, then, in a tone whose festive note seemed the echo of a mood lost in the night of ages, I am going to cook something. Ah, son, the old man knows where to find a bottle of wine, too. He turned to Giselle with a change to austere tenderness. And you, little one, pray not to the god of priests and slaves, but to the god of orphans, of the oppressed, of the poor, of little children, to give thee a man like this one for a husband. His hand rested heavily for a moment on Nostromo's shoulder, and then he went in. The hopeless slave of the San Tome Silva felt at these words the venomous fangs of jealousy biting deep into his heart. He was appalled by the novelty of the experience, by its force, by its physical intimacy. A husband, a husband for her. And yet it was natural that Giselle should have a husband at some time or other. He had never realised that before. In discovering that her beauty could belong to another, he felt as though he could kill this one of old Giorgio's daughters also. He muttered moodily, They say you love Ramirez. She shook her head without looking at him. Coppery glints rippled to and fro on the wealth of her gold hair. Her smooth forehead had the soft, pure sheen of a priceless pearl in the splendour of the sunset, mingling the gloom of starry spaces, the purple of the sea, and the crimson of the sky in a magnificent stillness. No, she said slowly, I never loved him. I think I never. He loves me, perhaps. The seduction of her slow voice died out of the air and her raised eyes remained fixed on nothing, as if indifferent and without thought. Ramirez told you he loved you? asked Nostromo, restraining himself. Ah, once, one evening. The miserable! <laughs> he had jumped up as if stung by a gadfly and stood before her, mute with anger. 
Misericordia defina, Jutur Jean Battista. Poor wretch that I am, she lamented in ingenuous tones. I told Linda, and she scolded, she scolded. Am I to live blind, dumb, and deaf in this world? And she told father, who took down his gun and cleaned it, poor Ramirez. Then you came, and she told you. He looked at her. He fastened his eyes upon the hollow of her white throat, which had the invincible charm of things young, palpitating, delicate, and alive. Was this the child he had known? Was it possible? It dawned upon him that in these last years he had really seen very little, nothing of her, nothing. She had come into the world like a thing unknown. She had come upon him unawares. She was a danger, a frightful danger. The instinctive mood of fierce determination that had never failed him before the perils of this life added its steady force to the violence of his passion. She, in a voice that recalled to him the song of running water, the tinkling of a silver bell, continued, And between you three you have brought me here into this captivity to the sky and water, nothing else, sky and water. Oh, Sanctissima Madre, my hair shall turn grey on this tedious island. I could hate you, Jean Battista. He laughed loudly. Her voice enveloped him like a caress. She bemoaned her fate, spreading unconsciously like a flower its perfume in the coolness of the evening, the indefinable seduction of her person. Was it her fault that nobody ever had admired Linda? Even when they were little, going out with their mother to Mass, she remembered that people took no notice of Linda, who was fearless, and chose instead to frighten her, who was timid, with their attention. It was her hair like gold, she supposed. He broke out. Your hair like gold, and your eyes like violets, and your lips like the rose, your round arms, your white throat. Imperturbable in the indolence of her pose, she blushed deeply all over to the roots of her hair. She was not conceited. She was no more self-conscious than a flower, but she was pleased. And perhaps even a flower loves to hear itself praised. He glanced down and added impetuously, Your little feet! Leaning back against the rough stone wall of the cottage, she seemed to bask languidly in the warmth of the rosy flush. Only her lowered eyes glanced at her little feet. And so you are going at last to marry Alinda. She is terrible. Ah, now she will understand better since you have told her you love her. She will not be so fierce. Chica, said Nostromo, I have not told her anything. Then make haste. Come tomorrow. Come and tell her so that I may have some peace from her scolding. And perhaps, who knows? Be allowed to listen to your Ramirez, eh? Is that it? Your mercy of God, how violent you are, Giovanni, she said, unmoved. Who is Ramirez? Ramirez, who is he? She repeated dreamily in the dusk and gloom of the clouded gulf with a low red streak in the west like a hot bar of glowing iron laid across the entrance of a world sombre as a cavern where the magnificent Capitas de Cargadores had hidden his conquests of love and wealth. Listen, Giselle, he said in measured tones, I will tell no word of love to your sister. Do you want to know why? Alas, I could not understand, perhaps, Giovanni. Father says you are not like other men, 
that no one had ever understood you properly, that the rich will be surprised yet. Oh, sense in heaven, I am weary. She raised her embroidery to conceal the lower part of her face, then let it fall on her lap. The lantern was shaded on the land side, but slanting away from the dark column of the lighthouse, they could see the long shaft of light kindled by Linda go out to strike the expiring glow in a horizon of purple and red. Giselle Viola, with her head resting against the wall of the house, her eyes half-closed and her little feet in white stockings and black slippers crossed over each other, seemed to surrender herself, tranquil and fatal, to the gathering dusk. The charm of her body, the promising mysteriousness of her indolence, went out into the night of the placid gulf like a fresh and intoxicating fragrance spreading out in the shadows, impregnating the air. The incorruptible Nostromo breathed her ambient seduction in the tumultuous heaving of his breast. Before leaving the harbour, he had thrown off the store clothing of Captain Fidanza for greater ease in the long pull out to the islands. He stood before her in the red sash and check shirt as he used to appear on the company's wharf, a Mediterranean sailor come ashore to try his luck in Costaguana. The dusk of purple and red enveloped him too, close, soft, profound, as no more than fifty yards from that spot it had gathered evening after evening about the self-destructive passion of Don Martin Decoux's utter scepticism, flaming up to death in solitude. You have got to here, he began at last with perfect self-control. I shall say no word of love to your sister to whom I am betrothed from this evening, because it is you that I love. It is you. The dusk let him see yet the tender and voluptuous smile that came instinctively upon her lips, shaped for love and kisses, freeze hard in the drawn, haggard lines of terror. He could not restrain himself any longer. While she shrank from his approach, her arms went out to him, abandoned and regal in the dignity of her languid surrender. He held her head in his two hands and showered rapid kisses upon the upturned face that gleamed in the purple dusk. Masterful and tender, he was entering slowly upon the fullness of his possession and he perceived that she was crying. Then the incomparable Capitaz, the man of careless loves, became gentle and caressing like a woman to the grief of a child. He murmured to her fondly. He sat down by her and nursed her fair head on his breast. He called her his star and his little flower. It had grown dark. From the living room of the lightkeeper's cottage, where Giorgio, one of the immortal thousand, was bending his leonine and heroic head over a charcoal fire, there came the sound of sizzling and the aroma of an artistic frittura. In the obscure disarray of that thing happening like a cataclysm, it was in her feminine head that some gleam of reason survived. He was lost to the world in their embraced stillness. But she said, whispering into his ear, God of mercy, what will become of me here now, between this sky and this water I hate? Linda, Linda, I see her. She tried to get out of his arms, suddenly relaxed at the sound of that name. But there was no one approaching their black shapes, enlaced and struggling on the white background of the wall. Linda, poor Linda, 
I tremble. I shall die of fear before my poor sister Linda, betrothed today to Giovanni, my lover. Giovanni, you must have been mad. I cannot understand you. You are not like other men. I will not give you up, never, only to God himself. But why have you done this blind, mad, cruel, frightful thing? Released, she hung her head, let fall her hands. The altar cloth, as if tossed by a great wind, lay far away from them, gleaming white on the black ground. From fear of losing my hope of you, said Nostromo. You knew that you had my soul. You know everything. It was made for you. But what could stand between you and me? What? Tell me, she repeated without impatience, in superb assurance. Your dead mother, he said very low. Ah, poor mother, she has always, she is a saint in heaven now, and I cannot give you up to her, no, Giovanni, only to God alone. You are mad, but it is done. Oh, what have you done? Giovanni, my beloved, my life, my master, do not leave me here in this grave of clouds. You cannot leave me now. You must take me away at once. This instant, in the little boat, Giovanni, carry me off tonight from my fear of Linda's eyes before I have to look at her again. She nestled close to him. The slave of the San Tome silver felt the weight as of chains upon his limbs, a pressure as of a cold hand upon his lips. He struggled against the spell. I cannot, he said, not yet. There is something that stands between us two and the freedom of the world. She pressed her form closer to his side with a subtle and naive instinct of seduction. You rave, Giovanni, my lover, she whispered engagingly. What can there be? Carry me off in thy very hands to Donna Amelia, away from here. I am not very heavy. It seemed as though she expected him to lift her up at once in his two palms. She had lost the notion of all impossibility. Anything could happen on this night of wonder. As he made no movement, she almost cried aloud, I tell you I am afraid of Linda. And still he did not move. She became quiet and wily. What can there be? she asked coaxingly. He felt her warm, breathing, alive, quivering in the hollow of his arm, in the exulting consciousness of his strength and the triumphant excitement of his mind, he struck out for his freedom. A treasure, he said. All was still. She did not understand. A treasure, a treasure of silver, to buy a gold crown for thy brow. A treasure, she repeated, in a faint voice, as if from the depths of a dream. What is it, you say? She disengaged herself gently. He got up and looked down at her, aware of her face, of her hair, her lips, the dimples on her cheeks, seeing the fascination of her person in the night of the gulf as if in the blaze of noonday. Her nonchalant and seductive voice trembled with the excitement of admiring awe and ungovernable curiosity. A treasure of silver, she stammered out then pressed on faster. What? Where? How did you get it, Giovanni? He wrestled with the spell of captivity. It was as if striking a heroic blow that he burst out, like a thief. 
the densest blackness of the placid gulf seemed to fall upon his head. He could not see her now. She had vanished into a long, obscure, abysmal silence, whence her voice came back to him after a time with a faint glimmer which was her face. I love you. I love you. These words gave him an unwanted sense of freedom. They cast a spell stronger than the accursed spell of the treasure. They changed his weary subjection to that dead thing into an exulting conviction of his power. He would cherish her, he said, in a splendour as great as Donna Emilia's. The rich lived on wealth stolen from the people, but he had taken from the rich nothing, nothing that was not lost to them already by their folly and their betrayal. For he had been betrayed, he said, deceived, tempted. She believed him. He had kept the treasure for purposes of revenge, but now he cared nothing for it. He cared only for her. He would put her beauty in a palace on a hill, crowned with olive trees, a white palace above a blue sea. He would keep her there, like a jewel in a casket. He would get land for her, her own land, fertile with vines and corn, to set her little feet upon. He kissed them. He had already paid for it all, with the soul of a woman and the life of a man. The Capitas de Cargadores tasted the supreme intoxication of his generosity. He flung the mastered treasure superbly at her feet in the impenetrable darkness of the gulf, in the darkness defying, as men said, the knowledge of God and the wit of the devil. But she must let him grow rich first, he warned her. She listened as if in a trance. Her fingers stirred in his hair. He got up from his knees, reeling, weak, empty, as though he had flung his soul away. Make haste then, she said. Make haste, Giovanni, my lover, my master, for I will give thee up to no one but God, and I am afraid of Linda. He guessed at her shudder and swore to do his best. He trusted the courage of her love. She promised to be brave in order to be loved always, far away in a white palace upon a hill above a blue sea. Then, with a timid, tentative eagerness, she murmured, Where is it? Where? Tell me that, Giovanni. He opened his mouth and remained silent, thunderstruck. Not that, not that, he gasped out, appalled at the spell of secrecy that had kept him dumb before so many people falling upon his lips again with unimpaired force. Not even to her. Not even to her. It was too dangerous. I forbid thee to ask, he cried at her, deadening cautiously the anger of his voice. He had not regained his freedom. The spectre of the unlawful treasure arose, standing by her side like a figure of silver, pitiless and secret, with a finger on its pale lips. His soul died within him at the vision of himself creeping in presently along the ravine with the smell of earth, of damp foliage in his nostrils, creeping in, determined in a purpose that numbed his breast, and creeping out again loaded with silver, with his ears alert to every sound. It must be done on this very night, that work of a craven slave. He stooped low, pressed the hem of her skirt to his lips with a muttered command. Tell him I would not stay, and was gone suddenly from her, silent, without as much as a footfall in the dark night. She sat still, 
her head resting indolently against the wall and her little feet in white stockings and black slippers crossed over each other. Old Giorgio coming out did not seem to be surprised at the intelligence as much as she had vaguely feared, for she was full of inexplicable fear now, fear of everything and everybody except of her Giovanni and his treasure. But that was incredible. The heroic Garibaldino accepted Nostromo's abrupt departure with a sagacious indulgence. He remembered his own feelings and exhibited a masculine penetration of the true state of the case. Va bene, let him go. Ha <laughs> ha! No matter how fair the woman, it calls a little. Liberty, liberty, there's more than one kind. He has said the great word, and San Giambattista is not tame. He seemed to be instructing the motionless and scared Giselle. A man should not be tame, he added dogmatically out of the doorway. Her stillness and silence seemed to displease him. Do not give way to enviousness of your sister's lot, he admonished her, very grave, in his deep voice. Presently he had to come to the door again to call in his younger sister. It was late. He shouted her name three times before she even moved her head. Left alone, she had become the helpless prey of astonishment. She walked into the bedroom she shared with Linda like a person profoundly asleep. That aspect was so marked that even old Giorgio, spectacled, raising his eyes from the Bible, shook his head as she shut the door behind her. She walked right across the room without looking at anything and sat down at once by the open window. Linda, stealing down from the tower in the exuberance of her happiness, found her with a lighted candle at her back, facing the black night, full of sighing gusts of wind and the sound of distant showers, a true night of the gulf, too dense for the eye of God and the wiles of the devil. She did not turn her head at the opening of the door. There was something in that immobility which reached Linda in the depths of her paradise. The older sister guessed angrily. The child is thinking of that wretched Ramirez. Linda longed to talk, she said in her arbitrary voice, Giselle, and was not answered by the slightest movement. That girl that was going to live in a palace and walk on ground of her own was ready to die with terror. Not for anything in the world would she have turned her head to face her sister. Her heart was beating madly, she said with subdued haste. Do not speak to me, I am praying. Linda, disappointed, went out quietly, and Giselle sat on unbelieving, lost, dazed, patient, as if waiting for the confirmation of the incredible. The hopeless blackness of the clouds seemed part of a dream too. She waited. She did not wait in vain. The man whose soul was dead within him, creeping out of the ravine, weighted with silver, had seen the gleam of the lighted window and could not help retracing his steps from the beach. On that impenetrable background, obliterating the lofty mountains by the seaboard, she saw the slave of the San Tome silver, as if by an extraordinary power of a miracle. She accepted his return, as if henceforth the world could hold no surprise for all eternity. She rose, compelled and rigid, and began to speak long before the light from within fell upon the face of the approaching man. You have come back to carry me off. It is well. Open thy arms, Giovanni, my lover, I am coming. 
his prudent footsteps stopped, and with his eyes glistening wildly, he spoke in a harsh voice. Not yet. I must grow rich slowly. A threatening note came into his tone. Do not forget that you have a thief for your lover. Yes, yes, she whispered hastily. Come nearer, listen. Do not give me up, Giovanni. Never, never. I will be patient. The form drooped consolingly over the low casement towards the slave of the unlawful treasure. The light in the room went out and waited with silver. The magnificent Capitaz clasped her round her white neck in the darkness of the gulf as a drowning man clutches at a straw. End of part third, The Lighthouse, chapter twelve.